1: Welcome everyone, this is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt, I'm your host. And our guest today is Shauna Armitage. She is a fractional CMO we're going to talk to her about the work that she does with businesses, helping them with marketing and really understand strategy, implementing that. I think marketing is often a misunderstood and poorly implemented <laughs> part of most businesses. So I'm excited for this conversation, and I think for uh, service companies in general and, and specifically, uh, it marketing is tough. You know, trying to explain, trying to show value for services uh, can be difficult. We're not there isn't a thing that you can point to. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a very intangible thing. So. trying to figure out how to market that, how to build trust, how to build awareness, you know, and really create uh, sales qualified leads or marketing qualified leads for the sales process is a a challenge for for many businesses. So we're going to talk to Shauna a little bit about her thinking strategies, work that she's done, hopefully a couple ideas you can take away and apply to your business uh, and figure out how to grow and scale more quickly. With that, Shauna, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. So before we kind of dig into marketing and, you know, all the, all the kind of things that uh, we can help businesses with and in terms of growing and scaling, uh, let's learn a little bit more about you and your background. Tell us the story. What professionally? What was your journey? And tell us uh, how you got here today.
0: Sure. I think I've had a really weird professional journey. I don't know if that's strange to I think we all have at some level,
1: but yeah. Yeah.
0: I wanted to be a teacher, and I went to school to be a teacher and then realized that I hated tests, panicked.
1: <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say I hated children, but...
0: <laughs> no, I've got four of those, so yeah. if I hated children, that would be really problematic. But uh, I, hated, I hated taking the tests. I really wasn't comfortable yeah. with it, wasn't good at it, but you have to pass a lot of tests to be a teacher. So... I ended up graduating early and instead of double majoring, I took the minor in education with the major in history. So it sounds really great on paper that I graduated with a degree in three years, but that degree was totally useless. So, you know, with my degree in history, went out into the world and couldn't get a job, strangely enough. So I went back to school, got another degree in professional writing, and that was kind of the beginning for me. At that point, it was 2011, the economy was tanking, and again, I couldn't even get an interview. And someone in my family suggested that I try virtual assisting. So that's what I did. Within two weeks, I had my first gig. It was really flexible. I could take on other projects. I could do as much or as little as I wanted. And it seemed like a really good fit. Now, my background in writing made me a good prospect for marketing companies because there's so much of marketing that has to do with writing in some way. I didn't really know marketing was the thing before that, if I'm being completely honest. Mm -hmm. And that's where I really just dove in and learned from my mentor and got a lot of information and realized what I was doing was just a small part of this bigger picture. And I really liked the bigger picture. So I did more marketing gigs for the next couple of years until finally this first mentor that I had had started his own company, and asked me to come on as the number two. I was thrilled. This was my dream job. This was going to be my forever job. So my husband and I talked about it. I quit my job as an SEO coach for a really reputable organization Mm -hmm. and dove in headfirst. And it didn't go according to plan. (laughs) For the first couple of months, it was great. We were really on the same page. We were bringing on new clients. And then I found that as we were bringing on more clients, the customers were getting less attention. We were hiring new team members, probably, you know, things that we could have done with our two skill sets. We were bringing on new team members for that. And it became more about just getting the invoices paid, getting more and more and more clients and not actually about taking care of the clients. So this is just, you know, a horror story of scaling done wrong. And It bothered me on a deep level. I knew that these companies didn't have a lot of money to invest and they they needed to see a return. They needed to see things happening. And when I brought it up to the boss, to my mentor, he didn't like that pushback. So we had talked back and forth a couple times about it. And then six months in, I remember it really vividly. It was three weeks before my husband, who was in the Air Force, was leaving for his first deployment to the Middle East. And I woke up in the morning, went to work, but my email was down and I didn't have access to the drive. All my files were gone. Uh I got on a phone call two hours later and he said, I'm sorry, you're just not a good culture fit anymore. We're done. So yeah, it it was a full-time job. It was terrifying. And that's at the point where I decided that I was going to do marketing, but I was going to do it in a way That felt good to me, that felt like it had integrity, that it was good for the people that I was working for. And I decided to go into business for
1: myself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's two interesting things from that story that I, I, I certainly have lea- learned over the years. And I think a lot of the a lot of the leaders I've worked with have had like, similar experiences, which is, you know, one is, you know, I think ev- everyone feels or, or thinks that somehow a full-time job is is more secure <laughs> than, than being an independent consultant or, you know, being kind of having business on your own. And mm-hmm. while, yes, at some level, you're always chasing that client and, you know, you have to be very focused on business development. It can be up and down. You know, the fact is, is that a full time job is not is. There's nothing permanent about a full time job, right? And and in fact, it can be pretty disastrous if if it's you know it, com- it comes at the wrong time or it comes without a whole lot of you know warning. It can be really disruptive. And the other one too is you know there's there's. So many different types of companies and different ways of doing things, it's just so important to get a good fit, you know, both culturally and process and philosophy and how you view the world. And you know, it sounds like in this case it, it was pretty challenging, but you know, I've also seen cases where you know, every, everyone is, you know, it's good, everyone's doing good work, but they just realize they're just not on the same page in terms of where they want to go or how they want to operate, core values. And getting those things right in the beginning, it can be hard to figure out and hard to determine, but they can be really you know, impactful if you do or do not get that right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more.
1: Yeah. So you decided to go out on your own. Tell me a little bit about that process of deciding kind of what you were going to focus on, who is going to be your core clients, what, how you were going to service them, You know, how you're going to kind of make yourself somewhat different and unique in the market. How did that process play out for you?
0: I had no idea. <laughs> I, uh... I talked to a friend. She just kind of helped me discover a business name. I got my LLC because I knew that I didn't want to be a freelancer. I wanted to have a business and I wanted to have my assets protected. And I wanted to, you know, treat this as a real business, not just contracting out for somebody else. Yeah. So that was the first thing that I did. And I was very lucky that I had one of those clients from the other company realize I was leaving and say, we want to come work with you. So I had my first client in the first 30 days, which was really cool. And I think that it helped me get that confidence and kickstart that I really needed. But the truth is that I fumbled. I didn't know for probably the first year where I belonged because I had just kind of been working as a marketing generalist and working for a marketing generalist and you know, marketing for... Small businesses is very different than marketing for coaches or marketing for startups. But what happened to me is a few months in, I got a desk at a co-working space. It was the first time I had probably worked out of my house in a few years. And uh, I got a desk at a co-working space and I met some people. And one of them was a startup founder who needed a market study done. He asked me to come on board, do it. And we had a great experience. And two months later, he asked me to fill that, that CMO role on his team. And then a couple months later, it was probably just a little over a year after I had parted ways with the original company, someone they had worked with had had a bad experience, but remembered me and found me on LinkedIn and said... You know, we're not having a good experience. We don't know how to feel about it, but we remember that you made a good impression on us. And we think that we need to now fill this fractional CMO role. Is that something that you would be interested in? So I immediately jumped on board. I was thrilled about it. And then the threads just started coming together. I had two startups on my roster that were just perfect. It's exactly the kind of company that I wanted to be working with. And that's when I really just pivoted my approach, my mindset around doing marketing for early stage startups.
1: Yeah, yeah. The good it, and, and I. It just goes to show you never know. <laughs> These people are going to come back into your lives at different times. Like I've had so many experiences of you know p- people from the past, blast from the past, that all of a sudden knock on the door, you know, shoot me an email, and uh, it's like, yeah, you know, we did some stuff like ten years ago, and I would mm-hmm. you came to mind, and you know, so I just like always do good work, always keep relationships, always kind of keep in touch with people. Is that stuff pays off ultimately? You, you just never know when and who it's going to be. So. Yeah, good for you. Good for you. As you started working with these folks, how, like, as... How did you decide like what was your sort of the most value you were creating? Cuz I think one thing that I find a lot is, you know, people can kind of start practices like this and there's lots of things they can do, right? There's lots of ways they can help. They can do market studies, they can do planning, they can do strategy, they can, you know, help sort vendors, right? They can there's all sorts of things they can do. But generally what I find is they're not all of equal value at least in the mm-hmm. client's mind. How did you kind of sort through exactly what you were doing with these for these folks and, and determine what the most valuable thing was or or how to kind of focus your your effort on things that were that was really going to generate value for your clients.
0: So the truth is that I do a lot of different things for these folks, but that was kind of one of the main pain points that I was noticing from startup to startup. For most of them, they know that they need marketing. They understand how important it is, but they don't know how to go about it. They don't have any strategy in mind. You know, at best, they say, well, maybe we need to throw some money at content or ads. So now they're just hiring a bunch of different freelancers to do different things with no idea of how it cohesively works together towards their growth. So that was the big thing is that they needed marketing, but as an early stage startup, they can't hire a full-time person to come on board. So filling that gap between freelancer and full-time hire was the first main gap that I saw myself filling. The other thing was consultants, because a lot of these startups will hire a consultant, but then they don't have the bandwidth to actually execute on anything that the consultant has given them.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So
0: I do the strategy and I do most of the execution, which is just not something that you see a lot in my field, and it's a real differentiating factor.
1: Yeah, yeah, so it sounds like most of the folks that come into these companies, work with these companies, kind of come up with a plan and and give them you know a big project definition, but then kind of land it with the client, and then it's something to the client to implement. And yeah, I've certainly seen a lot of a lot of great ideas on paper never actually reach the light of day. I guess what what do you think makes you uh, good at being able to bring these together? I mean, what, as you've kind of had more experience working with clients, what's that connection that you make between strategy and implementation?
0: I think. That it actually is, I mean, I start with the strategy and then I do the implementation, but especially in the startup space, I've realized that you have to pivot fast, where if you were in any other kind of industry, you could try things for a couple of months, see how it goes. Startups have... Two big gaps, right? They don't have a lot of time and they don't have a lot of money. They're not working like a traditional business where they have income coming in and they use that to pay the bills or pay their staff. A lot of startups are working at a deficit because of, you know, getting infusions of capital to grow quickly. So they have to actually get to the place where they're covering their burn or the amount of money that they're spending monthly to grow. So, It's just really important that you see something happening and you run with it or you stop it or you pivot directions and try something new. I think that is just another issue that startups have with working with different kind of marketing freelancers. Because if you have a an SEO freelancer, they're going to truly believe that SEO is the way to grow your company and you have to do it, right? If you're working with a Facebook ad specialist, they are going to 100% believe that is the way to make you money in your business. And it's not that they're lying to you, that's their specialty. They know Mm -hmm. what they can do and they truly believe it. But having somebody who is not attached to one strategy or one modality is really important because then you can have this big overview and also be able to objectively look at what's happening and say, you know, we don't want to waste any more time doing this. Let's go in this completely other direction and see what comes from it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I see that all the time. Where a, a company just kind of takes on a strategy because you know it worked the, in the last company or a friend of theirs uses it and it's working really well or something, you know. And they're yeah, whether well, it's SEO or Facebook ads or something, you know, it's like they're just going to throw all their eggs in, into that basket and you know pray and hopefully it works. But yeah, I, I guess tell me a little bit about the process you you use to kind of get to know the company, understand what their goals are, understand what their market is, and what are they kind of options or or strategies that you consider when you're thinking about what is the best way to actually develop a successful marketing program for a company. What how does that process work? What's the diagnostic and what are the things you're thinking of?
0: So the first thing that I'm gonna start with is I'm gonna get them on a phone call and I'm gonna ask them all sorts of questions and I'm really gonna push them to share numbers with me, Mm -hmm. whether it is how many people they have on social media, how many people they have on their email list, also their goals. You would be shocked and just disgusted at how many business owners don't have goals to reach. So we're talking about marketing being a really hard thing to track. Well, anything is going to be hard to track if you don't have a number <laughs> that you're trying to get to. Yeah. So whether it be a monthly revenue goal or a amount of product moved in a certain amount of time, what the founders usually know is that they, they want to do better or they want to get profitable, but they don't actually know in numbers on paper what that means. So a big part of that first conversation is pulling that out of the founders and trying to get some solid goals set. Then I have a discovery sheet that I have them fill out and it asks things like, you know, what are their current assets? What are their goals? Who's on their team? What are the skill sets on the team that we can utilize? What is the budget? You know, if they haven't thought of a budget yet, I need them to set one. So we really dig in on what their foundation is in terms of messaging, their owned assets, their skill sets, their budget. And then I can see where they're at, you know, and Mm -hmm. start charting the journey for how we're going to get to the place where they want to be.
1: Yeah when it comes to budget what i guess what's um, some rules of thumb some heuristics around what a reasonable budget is either in terms of you know overall revenue or in terms of you know projected revenue for you know what you hope to bring in for the product or service that you're marketing like how do you determine how much to invest in marketing and and what's the kind of the logic or the formula that you use
0: so i'm going to give you an answer that you're probably going to hate because it's just <laughs> it's just Not that specific, right? I think the number, when you have an established business that's profitable, the number is like 20% of your revenue should go back into marketing. But here's the problem. If you're a startup and you don't have revenue, how do you decide... And with zero marketing, zero brand awareness, then you're not growing. So you've got that chicken and egg kind of problem. And I, I remember very clearly a few years ago having a discovery call with this new company. They were great. They had a unique new product. They spent two years. They got a decent amount of investment. They spent two years really drilling down on getting this product perfect. But now that they were talking to me, they had no budget for marketing. Yeah, exactly. So they had all this product, but nobody knew that it existed. And unfortunately, the whole build it and, and they will come thing is it just, it's not true. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Yeah. So the company ended up going under a year, a year and a half later because they could not get the word about their product out there. They yeah. weren't able to really sell. So in terms of setting a budget, I think the biggest thing is that companies just have one to begin with and that you don't expect marketing to be an organic process. Like you just start posting on social media and all of a sudden everyone on Instagram loves you and and purchases. It doesn't work like that. You usually need to spread your marketing budget over a couple different places, whether it's working with influencers, whether it's doing Facebook and Instagram advertising, or even if you're kind of going old school and sending postcards in the mail, there's Mm -hmm. a different different strategies to do based on your goals, but it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to dive deep into any of them if you're not willing to invest. And sometimes that means financially as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I I ran into a company recently that had this crazy process of using fax machines because they realized that a lot of fax numbers are connected to email and they were able to get through a lot of the Email kind of uh, filters and stuff because they were sending faxes that showed up as emails and getting to the people that they wanted to reach. I thought that was a kind of a brilliant old school strategy for, yeah. for being able to reach folks. You know, for service based companies, what are some of the sort of things that you typically would look at? I mean, you know, obviously we're. You know the, How to build awareness and what we're selling is a l- little different than you know, a SaaS technical platform or you know, someone like a, a Facebook advertising when you're selling products into a store. Uh, as you look at service companies, what are some of the things that you've seen they kind of get right or strategies that you think have, have been used particularly well for, for that type of business model?
0: I think when it comes to service-based companies, in terms of brand awareness, what really counts is your network. When I started that, that was hard for me because I didn't have a strong network. I didn't know where to network. I was going to networking groups, but they didn't serve the people I wanted to be serving. And that's out there. And there's going to be more that are wrong than the Mm -hmm. ones that actually have synergy with what you're trying to do. So as a service-based provider, really finding the places where my customers were at and starting to network there was huge for me. And then also just the testimonials. I think that it's really easy to to get a testimonial on your website, put stuff like that on social media. I have my customers do video testimonials for me, which is great. Mm -hmm. And because I've developed such a strong relationship with them, even after we're working together, we're not working together anymore. I have several past clients who will hop on the phone with a potential client and talk to them about their experience. I think that's really, really important for service-based businesses to have that kind of brand advocacy behind them.
1: Yeah. Testimonials can be key. Any any suggestions or strategies in terms of either how to get the testimonial or what people should actually say in a testimonial? Like if you're going to do a written or a video or something like that? Because I find, you know, I think it's great when people get testimonials, but I find a lot of the testimonials kind of fall flat. Is there yeah. anything that you'd suggest in terms of how to do this to convince people to get the testimonial and then what they should actually say in it?
0: So first of all, I would go to the people that you feel like you have a strong connection with or someone who you feel like you personally have a good relationship with in the business. I think that's really important because you can ask everyone for testimonials, but the ones who are going to be most passionate and most convincing are the ones that you know you've done good work with. So yeah. I would start there. In terms of getting the testimonial, I would never want to fully rely on them <laughs> to do a testimonial, right? <laughs> so maybe not have a script, but have questions is really handy. You know, what what did you like about this experience or what stood out to you here? What kind of results did you get? Can you share numbers? Things like that. I always have people do a video testimonial and then I can pull bits and pieces from those to put into text testimonials in places where appropriate. So then I've got, you know, different mediums, which is great, and it just kind of You know, repurposing it that way gives you more to work with. I haven't done this personally, but I do it for a lot of my clients. If somebody wants to give a testimonial and they don't really know how to do it or you want to get specific answers out of them, I tell them to do a Zoom phone call. Write down your questions ahead of time. Do a video share. You record it. You ask the question, have them answer it, and then you edit the video to take yourself out of it. So it's just the customer face to screen the whole time and you use that as your, your video testimonial.
1: Yeah, it's a great strategy. Because the other thing I like about that is that it keeps a little more conversational. I always find when, if you can keep it more of a conversation that they feel like it's a conversation, it comes across, I think, much more naturally.
0: It does. And it also gives you the chance to pull things out of them. When you just put a question in an email or something like that, you might just get a one or two sentence answer that's not super effective. But when they said something to you and you said, wow, I really like that. Can you tell me more about that? Or how did that make you feel? Or what impact did that specific number have on your business? Then you can just draw out more information and it makes the the testimonial at the end that much more powerful.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And so as, as you work with folks, I mean, how... how when typically do you, get in, do you engage with a company as a fractional CMO, and when does that end? I mean, I guess, what is when does a company kind of realize they need someone who's going to be full-time? How does that process work? What have you experienced so far?
0: That's a great question. I have worked with people at all stages, and that's kind of the fun thing about working with early-stage startups because some have seed funding, some mm-hmm. are... Just backed by angel investors, some are bootstrapping and have no funding at all. They're paying for it out of pocket. So depending on where they're at financially or you know, where they feel like they're at, for me, startup is a mindset. We talk about high-growth startups, but you know, these companies that are getting funding are scaling really fast. You know, you've got your bumbles and your Ubers and you know, all these companies that get funding. But for all of those, there's a lot more <laughs> that are growing slowly, but still have really scalable models. Yeah. They're just doing it differently. So I work with a lot of companies that just still have that scalable model, still have those goals. They're just not on the same plan or path to grow as quickly. So I do come in with uh, you know, really early stage companies and help them there. And where it ends, the funny thing is, it it depends on the company. Because you could think that a company could go for a million-dollar seed round, and that's when they're going to hire a full-time marketing person. Not necessarily. That could yeah. just be the spot where they want to start hiring me, because... A million sounds like so much money, but when you're trying to grow (laughs) something, it's not
1: it's really really small. No,
0: so trying to like pay someone's full-time salary, I think people try to keep me on as long as they possibly can because it's more affordable having a fractional and being able to invest in other areas of the company. As long as companies want to keep me, then there, there's no reason for me to go away. But the, mm-hmm. the hard stop would be when they are just big enough where it makes sense to have a full-time CMO come on board.
1: Yeah. And how do Companies that you work with typically have other marketing resources in their business. I mean, do they have, you know, people that can do some of the lifting and and work associated with marketing so that you're kind of helping coordinate their internal resources or are you typically work with companies that have no no internal capacity and you're bringing external capacity to bear to execute
0: I would say typically no. Usually there's no internal capacity. You know, you usually have like the CEO doing social media or sales calls, Mm -hmm. which you don't want to happen, right? So bringing me on board is really a good way to, to separate that and to get marketing set up as its own department. I will say that sometimes they have things like interns. So they already have these people working for them. And I, I take over the, the management of the interns and really work with them on shaping their particular skill sets.
1: Got it. And what's your checklist as when, when you get a, a lead and you're, you're talking with them on the phone or video call, what are the things you're looking for to determine if they're going to be a good fit with you?
0: Well, there's a couple different things. You know, one of the first things I, I was talking, I was having a sales call last week, actually, and I told her how much it cost. And she said, oh, wow, that's really affordable. So that is a big green flag for me, because Uh if anyone is is thinking that my price is not affordable, I know that we're going to have issues when we're talking about advertising or needing budget for other things for growth. So that's one big thing. For me, again, it's that startup mindset, because you could have a small business, per se, But if there is that scalability factor, that is usually a company that I want to be a part of. And I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I was talking to this company that was a dance studio. That's not a scalable model. At some point, you're going to have to stop growing because you're... Physical space is not large enough. You can't fit more people in there. Your market share, you've maxed out your market share, right? You're only going to be able to serve people in X amount of cities surrounding where you're at. However, they felt really confident that this type of dance that they were doing was very unique, and they started doing it as an online platform. So now this company that's very small business, it's very much about just you know paying the bills, Now it's really, really scalable and you can grow that company without having to take on a lot more financial responsibility with, you know, hiring new instructors and getting new space and new electricity bills and, you know, all of those things that take away from your profits. Yeah. So that's, I think that's my favorite example of this very traditional kind of business and making it scalable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I always find that um, that successful scaling strategies typically involve either re- sort of hyper-focusing on a particular service or a particular thing that you do or, or changing kind of the mode of delivery. And a lot of times companies kind of cap out or, or find a ceiling when... You know they've they they can they can only handle so much volume, or they can only run the business to a certain size given given that model. But if they can rethink, yeah, that that mode of delivery, or you know what they're gonna what exactly they're they're providing, uh, it can then kind of help them rethink about um, how to scale or how to get to a different level in the business.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think that a lot of businesses have been forced to do that amid the pandemic. Their traditional business model that they were doing just fine with last year became obsolete or you know they couldn't keep it profitable business models come from traditional kind of business models just in the past year and it's really cool to see
1: yeah so th- this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you and the work that you do, what's the best place to get that information?
0: Sure. You can find me on Instagram at shauna.armitage, S-H-A-U-N-A dot A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E. And you can check out startuprenegades.com, which is the site for my new podcast where I am interviewing startup founders about how they took their idea and turned it into a scalable, profitable
1: brand. Awesome. I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes here so people can get that information. Shauna, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time.
0: You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt.